The reading this morning is from Mark, chapter 3, starting at verse 20. And if you've got a church Bible in it, it's on page 1005. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him, and they told him, your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, Here are my mother's mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures and we pray that as we open scriptures together, you would open our hearts to you afresh. Come and speak into our lives, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's very nice to see you and a warm welcome to you and to anyone who's watching online. We're continuing our journey through Mark's Gospel and I want to talk today about why following Jesus is far from plain sailing. Why following Jesus is far from plain sailing. And I want to begin with a question. Are you a starter or a finisher? When NASA was in the process of forming a team to put people on the moon, they did extensive psychological tests on candidates. They wanted to have a group of people who would hit it off 
when confined in a rocket and who would work well together. And one of the characteristics they were looking for, a personality type they wanted to have included in the team, was someone who was good at both starting and finishing. But they're rare. A starter is somebody who loves new projects and new ideas but has a hard time finishing them. And at the same time, a finisher has difficulty initiating projects. But if you're going to be a follower of Christ, we need to be good at both. Some of you will remember, I'm sure, watching a TV program in which very near the end of each round, the person asking a question would often use the catchphrase, I've started, so I'll finish. And if we're followers of Christ, that needs to be our catchphrase too. It's funny what gets lodged in your memory bank. And as I was thinking about this talk, a phrase came to my mind of a prayer. A prayer that during my time at a boarding school from about the age of 8 to 12, the headmaster would read out at least twice a week. And I guess that's why it kind of got into my consciousness. I had to Google it to actually find the whole thing. And this is how it goes. Lord God, when you give us to thy servants to endeavor any great matter, grant us also to know that it's not the beginning, but the continuing of the same, until it be thoroughly finished, that yieldeth the true glory, through him who for the finishing of thy work laid down his life for us, Jesus Christ." Quite what the headmaster thought the endeavor of great matter was going to be for an eight-year-old, I can't imagine. But that prayer, which is attributed to Francis Drake, does put the emphasis upon something I want to talk about today, how to finish well. Pretty much anyone can start something, but it's a different matter to see it through to the end. We've got the phrase, and we admire people who are self-starters, we need to admire people who are self-finishers. And we give a lot of attention in our kind of brand of churchmanship to helping people to launch in the Christian life. We love it. Why not? When people actually discover who Christ is and they come to him and they make a commitment to follow him. We should celebrate that. And it does need a lot of focus. And it's great that we do that intentionally. I'm not quite so sure that we're so good at doing the follow-up because it takes years and it never, never ends. Sticking with Jesus requires a lot of tenacity and grit. And maybe on one level, it's surprising. It's surprising when we come to this passage and it's so early on in Mark's gospel and Jesus is talking to a crowd of people but he's hit by opposition, left, right, and center, as I'm sure you notice. And it's surprising on one level, because what's he done that could possibly justify this opposition? I mean, he's healed the sick. Surely that's a good thing. He's freed people from demons. What's not to like about that? He's been teaching people about the kingdom of God, a kingdom where love, mercy, and justice reign. It does attract some people. A crowd come so that they couldn't even eat, we're told. But as the good works increase, the opposition to Jesus also increases. And here's the thing. Since Jesus tells his disciples that what came his way 
is coming our way, we need to realize that what's dished out to him, which we're reading about, will be dished out to us. So let's have a look at it. The first bit of opposition that comes in this reading is opposition from his own family. This is recorded in verse 21. Whereas the crowds come to listen to him, we're told about his family. Specifically, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. He's lost it. He's bonkers. Now, what's going on here? I think it's okay to let your imagination run a bit. I'm guessing what was going on here was they set off because they felt he needs to be reined in. We need to get him back home and tell him it's his turn to do the washing up. He's getting a bit big for his boots. There's overreach here. It's probably all that and more, I think. But there's something else too. Jesus is stepping out in a different direction. One that his parents can't control. They can't comprehend. And in a certain way, they can't contribute either. And it must have created tension. They would have remembered the Ten Commandments and the one that says, honor your father and mother. Well, what's going on now? Is Jesus doing that? Well, in a sense, he is, because he is following his heavenly father's footsteps now. And it leaves Mary and Joseph flat-footed, scratching their heads. And I think, to some extent, a similar thing happens to us. Whenever we decide to follow Christ, and it's him we take our orders from now, and quite often his commands and his orders will leave our contemporaries, even our families and our parents, nonplussed. Occasionally you will have been to a funeral, I will have been to a funeral, I've even spoken at funerals, where really what you want to say when you are commemorating the life of someone who's a fully paid up conscientious follower of Christ, a Christian, really what you want to say is, you won't be able to understand Fred's life, the way he chose to spend his time, where he spent his energy and his resources. You won't be able to make head or tail of the friendships he has or the legacy of his future without understanding the centerpiece of his life. And that is Jesus Christ. If you take Jesus out of his life, it makes no sense at all. And that's true, I hope, of you and me in the way we do our lives. But it means that to our friends who are not Christ followers, they are scratching their heads. And they are left wanting to rein us in and say, hey, you've lost it. Jesus calls us down a different track, doesn't he? And seeing as a Christian's purpose is precisely to let our lives revolve around Christ... It's a different way of doing life. Paul says we make it our aim to please him. Precisely, that's right. Whereas the world might say, and I think it does, we live to please number one, we'd say yes we do, but number one is Jesus Christ our Lord, not ourselves. And that's offensive to the world. So that's one stream of opposition, and you see it here. 
And of course it must have hurt Jesus to come from his mother and his brother and sisters and Joseph. But then there's a second stream of opposition here which is, bubbles up to the surface, doesn't it? And it it's, becomes evident in the dispute about demons and Jesus' handling of demons. And the teachers of the law, as you remember from the reading, accuse him and say, it's by the prince of demons he is casting out demons, verse 22. I think we do need to pause for a second or two just to ask ourselves a question. Do you think the whole idea of demons and the devil is far-fetched? And frankly, the answer is no, I don't. It's a major part of Jesus' ministry is to deliver people from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of light. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher, doctor, said some time ago now, I suggest a belief in a personal devil and demon activities is the touchstone by which one can most easily test any profession of Christian faith today. In a world of collapsing institutions, moral chaos, and increasing violence, never was it more important to trace the hand of a devil. If we can't discern the chief cause of our ills, how can we hope to cure them? As the Holy Spirit opens eyes, these spiritual realities become much more evident to us and we start to see what formerly we were blind to. Brother Andrew, who many of us will know through his book, God's Smuggler, once said, whenever you're doing a work for God, you're going to meet with opposition. If you have no opposition to your ministry, then I think you should begin to feel uneasy. If a devil isn't after you, you ought to worry that maybe you're not doing anything. Well, Jesus was doing something, and he was evidently often freeing people from the power of darkness from the devil and the teachers of the law didn't like it and they launched what today we would call a smear campaign fake news disinformation and they said it's by the prince of demons it's by Beelzebub that he's casting out demons every move of God is contested the history of revivals shows us that there have always been people who speak against spiritual moves of God, even revivals. I guess in this country, not exactly a revival, but a great move of the Spirit of God came with the Billy Graham Crusades quite some years ago now, but we know that they greatly impacted the whole nation. And even at the time, people spoke against them and said, no, this isn't God at work at all, came up with alternative explanations. Well, how does Jesus rebut these claims that it's a devil at work through him? He rebuts them in two ways. By speaking about how illogical it is to accuse him in this way, so he uses logic. And secondly, by issuing a dire warning. Well, first of all, the logic. Quite simply, he points out, look, if it's Satan casting out demons, then he's destroying himself it works in just the same way as if you start to destroy the foundation of a house if you pull out the bricks at the bottom of a building the whole building will inevitably collapse 
if, if Satan is casting out demons, what's going to be left? He, he, is, he would, as it were, be on a self-destruct mission. But he says, no, that isn't what's happening. He says, I am binding the strong man. I, I, the kingdom of God, is coming. Light is coming where formerly there was darkness. And you're going to see the darkness disappear. So he says, logically, it can't be right that what I'm doing is from the devil. But here's a stark warning. He says, be careful. Be careful because you could commit the unforgivable sin. Now, press pause. What is the unforgivable sin? Let me explain to you. The unforgivable sin isn't a specific action, like sometimes it's, someone might say, God can't forgive me, I've done X, or I've done murder, God can't forgive me, I've committed adultery. It's not so much that. This is what it is. It's refusing to heed the Holy Spirit when he's trying to lead you into God's company. If you do that, you can't be forgiven. Why do I say that? Because scripture teaches us there is only one way that we have access into God's company, and it's through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. You know, you're well taught, this is very familiar territory to you, that on the cross he cried out, it is finished, it's paid. And you know that everything about what went on the cross is about God opening a way for us to have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. But it's only through the Holy Spirit opening your eyes and your ears and your heart that you come to see this. There's no other way that you and I can comprehend this apart from the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. So if we put our fingers in our ears, if we won't let the Holy Spirit open our eyes, if we harden our heart, and when the Holy Spirit is prodding us, pointing us and saying, God's calling you to him, and we say, no, I don't want to go there then you will cut yourself off from the love of God and you will have committed what will become the unforgivable sin because God can't forgive you or me if we won't receive his forgiveness. It's as simple as that. And when these critics start to accuse Jesus, instead of saying, this is the kingdom of God coming, they harden their hearts, their eyes are shut and they say, this is Satan at work. It's like they will not see the Holy Spirit at work in their own lives and Jesus says watch out watch out don't, don't put yourself in the place where the Holy Spirit becomes useless in your life and he says this Mark tells us that helps us out because, because they were accusing him of doing works of darkness instead of works of light that's a terrible place to be well, is there any good news in this passage? Anything that will encourage us? Anything that will resource us, strengthen us as we meet this opposition? Yes, there is. Of course there is. Thank goodness there is. And it comes right at the end of the reading. That as fast as opposition might come our way, God provides us, provides us with all the resources we should need, in particular, a new family. And this comes out right at the very end where the crowd say your mothers and your brothers are outside your mother and your brothers are outside and they, they want you and Jesus looks at the circle of people around him and he says here are my mother and my brothers 
anyone who does the will of God, hears the will of God and does it, they're now my family. And friends, right across the world, this is true. When you and I decide to follow Christ, we have this whole new family given to us of people on the same mission. Don't we? And we're here to encourage each other, to train one another, to urge each other on, and to make sure that we finish well. We're not the only resource God has given us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the scriptures. But we are a very important resource for one another. And it would be very, very easy to overlook this and to forget it. I came across a rather touching illustration, I think, and I'll have to share it with you. James Boswell, the famous biographer of Samuel Johnson, used to write about everything that Johnson did, but in his own time, he wrote his own autobiography. And reflecting on his childhood, he wrote that the high point of his childhood was a day when one day his father took him fishing. He said that was the greatest day of all his childhood years. Quite a long time later, his father Alexander's journals were found. And someone looked up that day and found that the father had written this, went fishing with my son, a day totally wasted. Yes, shocking, isn't it? But what it illustrates is a complete mismatch of understanding of the value of how you spend your time. And I think it's very easy to undervalue how important we are to one another. You know, when you think of it as something like, I just go to church, that doesn't say half of it. First of all, we are the church individually, but we are God's provision for one another. And if I want to be really bold, and why not be? You won't finish well. I won't finish well if we cut ourselves off from the greatest resource that God has given us, which is each other. And if I want to be really bold, and why not be? I don't think shrinking violet generally uh, describes what I want to say. If I want to be really bold, I, I would reach out to people who are watching online and say, if it's physically possible for you to get into the same room as other worshippers, you need to do that. Now, for some, it's not possible. Some are watching from abroad, some are watching from all, all over the place, and you can't do it. But while it's a great blessing that we're able to communicate far and wide, it's a much greater blessing to be in a room and have eye contact with people on a regular basis. And if not Sunday, certainly midweek. And I'm not being a doomsayer, I promise you, but in the course of a lifetime, each of us is going to hit a crisis point. It is going to happen. And it may not be easy to talk about, but if you're in the same room as someone else, you pick it up you pick it up because our eyes are so fast to see things that you can't possibly see on Zoom. And you sense it and you can reach out and we can help each other in a million ways. But you can only do that if you are in proximity to someone else. I think small groups, it's a major, major part of what it means to belong to a fellowship. And to be in a small group is to up the chances of finishing well. That's the point I want to communicate. 
And to be a member of St. Michael's is an invitation to be in a small group. With renewed zeal and energy, a little group of us, Mark, Sam and I, meet every week now, and we set ourselves a target that anyone who wants to be in a small group should be given an introduction within 10 days to a small group. Because we think it's so valuable, so valuable, so essential to be part of God's new community. When we prayed as we did earlier, the Lord's Prayer, we said, Our Father, Our Father, we share Him together. We said we wanted His kingdom to come and His will to be done. That is the new driving force in our life. And we are the people to see one another over the finishing line well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reality of Scripture. And that scripture teaches us that it's no doddle to follow you, Lord Jesus. But you've given us all the resource that we need. Thank you for the people that have helped us and are helping us to run this race well. And we pray, Lord, that we might strengthen each other. We might appreciate each other. We might really urge one another on to love and good deeds, as the scripture says. And that today might have been a wake-up call for us, that with renewed zeal, we will seek after you and find you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.